new president is elected, administration officials change, but the White House staff often does not. Many of these White House lifers maintain their roles for decades, like Dale Haney, the chief groundskeeper since 1972, or Daniel Shanks, who was a server for 22 years. These staff members organize events, maintain the House, and facilitate the transitions between presidential administrations. So does the staff's loyalty remain with the White House or the current president? Good evening and welcome. I'm Liz Brailsford, the World Affairs uh, Council of Dallas-Fort Worth President and CEO. Our program tonight features a former speechwriter to President Obama, Susanna Jacob, here to discuss her recent article in The New Yorker, The Secret Life of the White House. I'm looking forward to her conversation with UT Austin's Jeremy Surrey about the everyday life inside one of America's most famous buildings. I would like to give special thanks to our Global Forum sponsor, The Billingsley Company. I would also like to recognize and thank Cher and David Jacobs for their support of tonight's webinar. And a quick reminder that to everyone that you too can sponsor a council program, simply get in touch with Alana Boyne Rostro here at the council at 956-466. 1149 about sponsorship opportunities. And as always, you can submit your question, questions throughout this evening's program by using your Q&A box at the bottom of your screens. And now I will turn it over to Dave, David Jacobs, whom we're lucky to have as vice chairman of our board to introduce our speaker and moderator. And Dave, thank you very much. We're uh, lucky to have you. And we're so happy to see everybody here tonight. Thanks, Liz. Moderating this program tonight is our good friend, Professor Jeremy Surrey, the Mac Brown Distinguished Chair for Leadership in Global Affairs at the University of Texas at Austin, where he is a professor of history and public affairs. He has authored nine books about contemporary politics and foreign policy. Professor Surrey is also a contributor for the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Dallas Morning News, and foreign affairs and is one of the foremost presidential historians in this country and to top it all off is a great friend of our world affairs council and for that we thank you jeremy tonight jeremy will chat with susanna jacob a writer and former speech writer for president barack obama from 2014 to 2017 and a former student of jeremy surrey as a PhD student in Yale University's Department of History, Jacob's interests focus on 20th century America, labor, and political history. Her work has been published in the New Yorker, the Atlantic, and the New York Times. She holds a BA in history from, <clears throat> from the University of Texas at Austin and is a graduate of Plano West Senior High School right here in North Texas. Plano West recently competed in the World Affairs Councils of America's National Academic World Quest competition and won first place. Plano schools have won eight out of the last 10 competitions in, in the United States. And for that, we are so proud of you guys. The council community is very proud of their hard work. And we are honored to have here tonight, both Susanna a graduate of Plano West and the co-president of Plano West's Junior World Affairs Council, Pranav Patata Tu Na Duville. And with that, Jeremy, it's all yours. Well, thank you, David. Uh, I, I'm so delighted to, to be with you all. My only regret is that we can't all be together in the same place, I'm hoping soon. Uh, if everyone is good and gets their vaccinations, I'm going to put a plug in for that. Uh, we can all be together uh, because I so enjoy events with the Dallas World Affairs Council. And uh, David and Cher and Liz and Alana and Carolyn are just one of the best groups to work with in the country. I speak with and at a lot of different groups and the Dallas World Affairs Council, Dallas-Fort Worth World Affairs Council is easily my favorite. 
uh, and I enjoy our time together so much. I'm glad we can do it this way now, uh, but, but I hope, David, we can get a rain check for, for doing this again in person soon. David, what do you think about that? Oh, David's still with us. Is that I okay, David? We, I think we can do that, Jeremy. <laughs> um, and it's a, real, it, it's a real delight tonight uh, to be showcasing uh, the really impressive groundbreaking work of Susanna Jacob and also uh, the emerging work of, of Pranav P. I'm gonna call him P, even though I, my family's from India as well. We're from Northern India, so I have trouble with the South Indian names. Uh, my grandmother would be disappointed in me, but um, uh, Pranav and Susanna represent, I think, some of the really great emerging talent in our country. And one of the great things that uh, the Dallas, Dallas Fort Worth World Affairs Council does is to showcase uh, a lot of young talent, not just uh, the old established talent, but a lot of young talent. And it's really wonderful that we have that on display tonight. Um, so Susanna, uh, starting uh, really at the beginning of your article, uh, you talk uh, wonderfully and lyrically uh, about your experience in the White House. Can, can you share with us a little bit about what, what really brought you to this reflection upon the White House staff, your experience with them, uh, what, it, what it was like, not just to be around all the people whose names we recognize, but these other important longstanding figures uh, who are so important to uh, the presidency, uh, who you had a chance to interact with. Can you share some of your experiences and feelings that, that underlay this beautiful article you've written? Thank you, yes, and um, thank you everyone. Uh, it's such a pleasure to be here and thank you Professor Suri who uh, was in fact someone who uh, in led me to a career as a historian uh, even though I didn't necessarily know it at the time. Um, so it's really exciting for us to be reconnected in this way. And I think, you know, the, I'll start at the end when the administration was over, there was this real sense of uh, kind of split that was happening between the House and the political staff. And as a speechwriter, you know, a lot of times we would invoke the history of the White House in kind of a marginal way, but it, it was a sort of inescapable part of working in the building, particularly if you were already interested in American history as I was. Um, and, you know, I think that I had this profound sense as I was leaving in the, in the final months that there was this group of people that were, was going to stay and they sort of represented the independent identity of the house. And I remember paying attention to that specifically and that sort of caused me to um, wonder what was what sort of would happen to them uh, during the transition, particularly because it was uh, such a such a dramatic transition. Um, we're seeing a picture of, of me in the Oval Office, which looks actually pretty, pretty different today. But um, uh, anyhow, it was it was vivid that that sense of this core of people who kind of were the living embodiment of the house and its history. And one of the things that's really interesting that comes out in your article and comes out in the, in the other things that have been written about about this subject are, are the stark differences in terms of class race, experience, between those we just saw in this in the photograph, your colleagues, your peers, uh, who are in some ways are the best and the brightest surrounding a president, and then those who, who are, are in these other positions. Um, can you describe that? You, you, you bring out their, beautifully in your, in your article, their different perspective. How did you experience that? Yeah, well, I mean, immediately, what was clear was that the Obama administration was filled with young people um, who especially, you know, of in the sort of junior aides, and I was a junior speechwriter, so a lot of um, my colleagues were assistants and, you know, sort of running around the White House, kind of part of this uh, thing that had a timestamp on it, right? A big part of working at the White House is the sense of a ticking clock. And by contrast, a lot of the lifers um, had worked in multiple administrations, and this was their, you know, lifetime commitment and it, you know it was their job so there was first the sense of you know they didn't have the same sense of a clock um, a lot of them were older had been there for many administrations had families lived you know in the suburbs of maryland and you know the sort of rural even hills of virginia and you know would commute in um, for a time and i write about this little this was starting to change but you know many of these jobs have been passed down through generations and generations and um, 
is that we're seeing a National Park Service uh, painter now. Uh, but it, it, they also, I think what impressed me so much is sometime before even the end, I became pretty fixated on the physical history of the building itself um, and read a couple volumes by a historian named William Seal, who's actually a Texan, who wrote kind of the definitive history of the White House as a building. And what struck me in his history was that he too told the story of the White House through the people that were there kind of as its keepers. And so I started to make the connection between their contemporaries who were all around me. Um, and I think that in addition to being older, to, to being more socioeconomically diverse, more diverse period in, cer in certain ways, they also all shared this fascination with the White House history itself. So we kind of, that was a link between them and me was the interest in that history. And, and, and why, Susanna, is the White House so important? I mean, obviously it's symbolic of the president, but it's more than that, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's an important seat of power. Kings have always had castles. The president has a White House. Why is it historically important? Yeah, well, there's so many, you know, it, it's so many answers to that question. It's funny because I think the answer I would have given you at the time and the answer I'm going to give you today maybe are slightly different because if you're a young person just starting your career and working in the West Wing, you feel like it's the center of the world and, you know, everyone um, it would drop anything to know what was going on. And my mother, who is on this call, I, you know, I sort of remember her being like, well, you know, the whole world is going on around um, you. And you know, maybe sometimes this is not like, it, it's not quite the be all end all, but I, I remember being 24, 25 and thinking there's nothing that uh, could, these are some, some speechwriters making some last minute edits, but um, nothing could be more important than this and nothing is going on. And I think, you know, on reflection, um, well, what's funny when you talk about kings and palaces, you know, what comes like over and over almost to the point that it's a cliche is that people sort of invoke the modesty of the White House. Um, and certainly that is exists in every sense. People always walk in and they're, even though that's a cliche, they're surprised by how small it is or how dinky, you know, it's how sort of worn um, its features are. And I felt like, you know, what was interesting is how that kind of continued that when you would walk out the, the sort of front gates that there would be all of these sort of tourists strewn on Pennsylvania Avenue and they would be from other places and they would be so surprised that it was close to the street, you know, that they had that response to it. But I think what's historically, at least what, what ultimately I felt is important about it was this, what was kind of the fact that it belonged to all of us and had a kind of identity independent of the person who lived there and that that was a very hard thing to achieve in the outset and it was a very hard thing to sort of sustain you know that one person could not put his stamp on it in and subsume it they it wasn't that that person you know it accumulated the identities of the presidents who lived there they were all over the walls and the changes they would make and um, were emblematic of their view of government, uh, particularly Franklin Roosevelt, who, you know, was responsible for the West Wing as it's laid out. Um, but I think that ultimately I was interested in understanding whether it was going to retain that sort of independence. Um, right. it's, it's interesting you mentioned Franklin Roosevelt. As you know, he was also responsible for the White House falling into real disrepair when Harry Truman took over as president. He had to go live in the Blair House for a while, right? Because I think Margaret, his daughter, almost fell through the floor, right? Because the floorboards were in such poor, such poor shape, right? So it's interesting that, that you bring up Franklin Roosevelt. <laughs> Uh, in, in that context, I, I wanted to ask you, and this is this is a topic that comes up in both um, President Obama's memoir and Michelle Obama's memoir. Uh, and I, by the way, I can't help but saying this, I think Michelle Obama's memoir is one of the best memoirs that's been written in a long time, better than her husband's. I, I like President Obama's, but I think Michelle Obama's memoir, especially on her White House experience, is really revealing. How did you see the White House changing the Obamas? We often talk about how the president changes the White House. But let's reverse that. I think one of the insights from your writing that, that a literary mind can bring to this, a literary and historical mind, is to see how the built environment, this is what every novelist writes about, right? How that shapes us, right? So, so in what ways did you see in your time with the Obamas, the White House changing them? Yeah, um, that's a great question. I think the most straightforward answer is a lot of it had to do with technology. You know, when we, like, and I started in the second 
second his second term, but. Dallas Baptist University is a global Christ-centered institution whose students are making an impact in business, law, medicine, education, public service, and the list goes on. DBU is honored to sponsor the Global IQ podcast and to offer a significant scholarship for World Affairs Council members towards a master's in international studies. For further information about this scholarship or about DBU in general, email Lee Bratcher at leeb at dbu.edu. You know, there was a lot of stories about when we got here, there were three laptops, you know, and like, and these young people who were acclimated to a digital sort of existence um, over time kind of brought the White House into uh, the digital age in all kinds of ways. We went from, you know, we got black, we got Blackberries and then we had iPhones, you know, we had everyone, there, there was sort of the, the, it became a cell phone culture. Whereas I think up till that point, really truly, it had been the case that when you went into the White House, you were in that ecosystem and there was a real division. Now there's terrible phone service in many parts of it to this day, but it was the case that the young aides were kind of communicating um, by, via iPhone by the end of the administration. And they were bringing, that was a challenge with the staff, you know, staff who were sort of used to doing certain planning Christmas in July, um, you know, we're kind of getting used to working with young people who wanted to change things, you know, at, at, a, at a drop's notice and where that concerns, you know, so I saw a lot of things from the perspective of the president's staff and the first lady staff interacting with this group of people and interacting with this aging house. But, you know, I think that certainly the president and the first lady tried to sort of signal not only you know, it's sort of 21st century attitude towards technology, but the normalcy of it, you know, that, that the White House was a place where a family lived and worked and, you know, had events and activities and people over for Thanksgiving. And it, it really did function that way. And I think that um, that some of the technology that I'm talking about ended up being a cultural signal about, you know, making it seem like a place that was not inaccessible and and, you know, represented the lives that ordinary other Americans were living. And so it's a really interesting point. You have a wonderful section in your New Yorker piece where you talk about uh, how bad the Wi-Fi was in certain areas. And uh, we can all sympathize with having parts of our homes where the Wi-Fi doesn't, it's no matter what you do, I've just gotten to Google Fiber and I have the same problem still sometimes. Uh, and, and the staff happened to order things on Amazon at home for the president. And it's just a wonderful, I mean, the most powerful man in the, in, the, in, in the world is having his staff go home so they can order him things by Amazon because they can't do it actually in the White House. Yeah, that was, I mean, there were a number of, I'm trying to think of some other examples, but it was, he, I think he was, we were all struck by the sort of agedness of it. And he was certainly struck by the agedness of it. And um, I think that, you know, but that, that was a testament to how it sort of, it was a it was a physical emblem of the constraints of the office, which you feel so poignantly when you're. I, I I was thinking about that, Susanna, because I was imagining the moments, you know, when the president is being briefed on poten potential drone targets, and so the most sophisticated technology in the world is going to be used to take someone out, you know, around the world. We've had sessions on this at the World Affairs Council, uh, but at the same time, his staff can't order him books through Amazon. <laughs> <laughs> it's a wonderful juxtaposition of the old uh, and, and the new. Um, you, much of your article is about the challenges uh, for the staff of the Trump administration, which is after, after you left. And you're very honest, I think. I'm going to praise you in, in not writing beyond your writs, not writing beyond what you knew. I mean, you really try to make that part of the article impressionistic and from the perspective of the staff who you've talked to afterwards. One point you make that I, I wanted to explore is uh, you say that one of the challenges under the Trump administration was Trump wanted to bring hotel people in and that that's a different culture. Uh, can, you, can you expand on that a little more? Yeah, well, you know, in the last, I would say in the last 30 years, there's been an explosion in innovation in food and dining and hospitality in the United States, which was actually not something I became more familiar with as, as I was writing this article and every in the last 30 or 40 years there has been a sort of running tension i mean the last 200 years actually in fact between you know the white house staff that has certain conventions of entertainment 
some of which are related to the way things have always been done, some of which you know are rooted in an earlier time, and some of which are related to their sort of sense of the modesty of the house and, and preserving its modesty. And so I think that what was interesting and surprising was, you know, the, the evolution you're talking about that came under Trump was certainly pronounced because he, I mean, he was he came in and had a hotel sensibility, and that meant a lot of things. It meant, you know, a lot in his relationship and expectations for the staff, of which I really, everything that I learned, I put in the piece, but also in the appearance of the house itself, which really is kind of, um, you would, you know, it's, it's, it kind of underwhelms. I, I mean, I grew to love it very much, but, uh, you know, the, it's got a kind of slapdash, not slapdash, but a collection of extremely historically important antiques, but they have you know, kind of a patina on them. It's not new. Everything looks old. And I think um, particularly, you know, the first lady, there was a sense of like kind of how things looked in New York and New York sort of style entertaining and the sense of the house and how it would be run. And um, I think that was, that was a hard uh, evolution. I would also say what I learned that was also interesting was that it had to do with you know, the way that the sort of the expectations of like at the Four Seasons, you know, is that people are sort of serving at the, you know, the guests are like, you know, have the premium, the last word that everything has to, you know, ha should happen immediately. And a big part of the White House is nobody pays to stay there, right? You know, so the, the staff goes beyond, above and beyond to be the most of, you know, they're available at a minute's notice. They're like the, you know, sort of, kindest, warmest, most thoughtful people, but they're not, they're not serving paying guests. And I think that that um, sometimes created a, you know, sense of people that came in and were seeking to manage the butlers, for example, as I talk about in the article, um, had a sense of importing how things worked at a hotel and the White House is not a hotel. So they felt, you know, they were sort of in conflict over that. Should it be a hotel? Um, well, I think one thing that's interesting is people responded to the article and they were like, I can't believe we pay for this group of people to serve the president, you know, that, that, that there is this group of people at all. And so you, but I don't know, I don't think so at all. And, you know, I, I feel strongly, I definitely came away from the story and from my experience at the White House feeling that the White House serves a really important purpose um, in preserving something independent. Um, and it it kind of comes in at the margins. It's not just the place. It's not just the people. It's not just the history. It's where all of those things intersect. But people are the ones who perpetuate that. And so I think the White House is a setting as a backdrop. It's like sort of consistency over time. It's resistance to change um, is profoundly influential on whoever is occupying that office. Mm -hmm. Is it, I mean, do you think it's it's a, a, a vital part of our democracy? And, and I mean, the democracy element of our government. Yeah, I mean, I think that increasingly, I think it's a building, you know? It's not, it's not, and buildings and, and documents can't make real what living people, they can't do the, the labor of, of the, the political labor required of us in the present to, to rise to the occasion and, um, come up with original ideas for really hard problems that feel intractable, that's, I don't think the White House can do that. But I certainly, it was so influential on my work as a speechwriter when I was there. And um, I don't discount that either. Right, I mean, it seems to me, and this is something that changed long before your time there, right? In that, uh, you know, the White House was designed to be the people's house. Uh, and it was designed to be modest. And until the late 19th century, presidents even answered the door sometimes, right? I mean, there are a number of occasions, and that's not just that Lincoln had office hours. Uh, he probably had more office hours than I have in a week as a professor. <laughs> Somehow he managed to do it and still write the Gettysburg Address in the second inaugural himself uh, without speechwriters. Um, 
But you know, President President Cleveland would answer the door. Even Hoover, to some extent, would answer the door, right? And and so it was the People's House. And now, uh, long before the Obamas and the Trumps were there, because of security considerations, and certainly since January sixth, it's gotten even worse, right? It, it, it it's so separated from our lives. And and you know, does that mean we've we've lost one of the key key purposes of the building? I did struggle with that. And I think that's a different aspect that we, we, I'm glad you're touching on it, which is that it felt like, you know, by cracks that there was a real, a sense of um, the physical inaccessibility of it was growing further and further with each decade. But I think what's also interesting is that people had a sense of the White House for hundreds of years, but they weren't inundated with images of it, you know, and they didn't, they didn't, there wasn't, you know, we live in such a more visual time that the White House as an icon, it may be more physically inaccessible. And I certainly felt similarly, you know, as you do, but there was parts of it where the Obamas brought in lots of people to do all kinds of sort of, you know, there was all a lot of like, we did a 3D tour of the West Wing, you know, there was, and and that many more millions of people have seen visual renderings of it and sort of connected it's that those historical rooms to present day images I think then would have been possible 50 100 years ago certainly sure sure Sure. you know as far as I know Jackie Kennedy's very famous uh tv special I think in 1962 when she sort of took people with camp with the tv cameras through the white house and all the decorations she had done for many Americans is the first time they had actually seen the inside of the white house uh, in yeah. that way, which is really extraordinary. Your point is so well taken today. Even if you haven't been to the East Room, you've seen the East Room, right? You could probably identify most of what's in the East Room and the Oval, et cetera. And so there is definitely a way in which the privacy of the White House has been lost, even as it's become more segregated from us as a society. Um, I, I guess I had two more questions and I want to turn to Pranav. And I know we have a lot of great questions from our, our terrific audience, including maybe your mom. Maybe she'll ask a question too. Uh, those are usually the toughest questions if they come from from parents, but two more questions. Uh, one, um, do you do you think that um, the Bidens will will be uh, monumental in not in their policy making? Uh, they might be, they might not be. That's not my question. In the mark they leave on the White House, is it important that they're coming after Trump? Will we see the Trump to Biden transition is significant? Certainly, you make the point in your article that the Obama to Trump transition is significant in the history of the building. Do you think the Trump to Biden transition will be significant? It could be that, you know, that I think it's significant in the sense that I really believe that if Trump had stayed there a second term, there would have been more profound and enduring changes to the building because it actually, like it did under Truman, needs a lot of rehabilitation and renovation. Um, and to Trump's credit, they did some of that work um, that the, the building badly needed, but there's a long overdue renovation of the West Wing. And so I think that if those happen, the who's in office makes the decisions about how closely they hew to the modest sort of history of the building. And so it could be very important in that way. And then the other thing, and this is what I wrote about in my story is, you know, um, the Bidens are people who walk into the room and immediately uh, identify who's working there. And um, they identify workers and, and they, and, you know, I mean, I, even I was a White House intern and Joe Biden would come talk to the interns and the staff would, in order to make sure he stayed on schedule, remove chairs from the room and he would stand and talk to the interns for three hours, you know? So I think that in the kind of culture of the staff, more than the physical building itself, in terms of appointing the next chief usher and setting the tone for, you know, how much of the the staff's culture as, you know, that sort of was in, especially in crisis in the Trump administration changes or doesn't change. I think that there's a vast potential for particularly the first lady to be influential in that way. And, and that's exactly where I was going to go with the, the final question. Uh, and, and I do want to underline for those who haven't read or reread your article, I think one of the, my favorite sections is where you talk about how the Bidens interact with the exhausted staff 
uh, on January 20th evening when they finally, we all watched this, when they finally, after a short hesitation, there's a short, because <laughs> there's no usher as you describe, right? They're, they're brought in and, and, and the time they take with the staff, it's really a beautiful uh, moment. It's not about politics, it's about uh, personal grace, it seems to me. Um, but I did want to ask the gender question. And we've talked a lot about labor, we've talked about politics. Um, will it matter when sometime soon we have a female president? Will that change the White House? I mean, yes, but you know, but in ways that I can't imagine. But I think that, um, you know, there is there is a sense of so much of it. Uh, the sort of East Wing culture revolves around entertaining and taste and and, but I don't think those are necessarily. You know, I think that I believe that whoever is in that position of having to have a million opinions about. Christmas and you know the order where the plants go and you know who's using what rooms for what that those that that who that person is as an individual will matter more than um, necessarily their gender. So 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 interestingly, you think it'll matter more that there's a first a first man rather than a first lady ostensibly making those decisions. Well, in the in the concerns of I mean the residents staff is not the president's that we like that was a sort of a far away like outpost the west wing was had no authority on what was going on in the east wing but the first lady or the first man if there is a first gentleman in the in the future um certainly would have has like ultimate authority and purview over a whole world that the west wing was mostly excluded and ignored wow about. wow if if when when whenever the soon I hope we have a female president and if if she has a husband if if her husband is is like in my relationship with my wonderful wife he'll get no say anywhere then uh, <laughs> East Wing or West Wing it'll be interesting to see Pranav before I get myself in trouble because my wife can hear me on this end I think uh, Pranav this was all a preview for you to ask uh, what I know you have I know you have. Uh, great question to ask. We want to turn to you and congratulate you again on keeping the Plano West tradition alive. I do have to say, I went to Stuyvesant High School in New York, and I remember beating you guys in debate year in and year out, which I enjoyed. And I've now enjoyed the opportunity to say this even 25 years later. You can see I haven't lost my, my concern for this. Pranav, please. Uh, first of all, thank you for this great opportunity, for sure. So uh, my question is, historically, the White House has maintained a level of secrecy about certain important information, right? So what's the communication system like between higher level officials and more of like the residential White House staff uh, to preserve the secrecy of important information, events, or decisions that are happening in the White House walls? That's a great question. I was not a higher level official so as, as a junior speechwriter, so I was given limited purview, but I think that um, what was true was, you know, I, there was, as I was saying a minute ago, this separation between the sort of West Wing and the world of the West Wing and the East Wing and the world of the, where the president and the, you know, first family lived and, right. but in a sense, it almost felt like sometimes that the resident staff who were given high security clearance because they worked in, you know, on the upper floors, they were the most discreet. So, you know, you had a sense, sometimes people would spill out of a meeting in the situation room, they'd be getting lunch, you, you know, you sort of, they wouldn't be revealing any, but there was a sense of that was a smaller place and the resident staff and the upstairs part of the White House was the most physically removed. So I'm not sure if that's exactly. Oh, that answered my question for sure. Yeah. Okay. yeah thank you. And I love, Susanna, how you describe the R they wear, right? It becomes a badge of honor that they get to go up to the residence, right? They get access in Pranav's to sense, to his excellent question, they get access to hear things uh, that they wouldn't, maybe others don't get to, to hear. Maybe not even speechwriters get to hear what, what they're hearing. Nobody tells speechwriters anything. <laughs> That's not true. That's not true. Uh, so uh, we have some terrific questions from, uh, as always, uh, the great audience at the or the Fairs Council uh, here. Not, I mean, they're not going to match Pranav's question, but they'll be pretty good, I'm sure. Uh, so Kirsten asks uh, a terrific question, actually. She comments on the intensity of the workplace and the changes, the shifts in occupants every four to eight years. And she wants you to describe a little more building on what you do in the article, the commitment of the staffers and uh, how much they interact with political staff. Is there really a, a China wall between the, the, the resident staff and the political staff? And say a little more about the commitment that the resident staff has. 
they would, I mean, they worked sometimes 24 hours. There would be, you know, a concert for veterans in the evening that would go into late into the night. And then there would be first thing in the morning, a press conference. And, you know, I keep saying this, but the White House is so small that there's not even a bathroom on the main floor. It's, there's bathrooms downstairs and there's bathrooms upstairs, but it, it just is this grid of rooms. So in order to make three or four events happen, people have to turn over historic furniture, antique tables, you know, just they're working under these crazy, you know, time pressures. Yeah, that's a, a photograph of a state dinner. And so the next morning there was maybe gonna be a press conference. Um, and, you know, it, so it, it's it's a whole, the, the building never has time to rest. And I think, you know, what's also the case is that there's a whole political staff who does work in the East Wing, in the social office and in the visitor's office. Um, and in the first lady's office and they interact constantly with the resident staff and I, I wasn't one of them, but many of them were my close colleagues and friends and I came to learn a little bit about the resident staff through that connection and they have to, to develop those relationships and that's part of the challenge of their job is like developing relationships with the political staff. And, and you, you're too kind to say it, but there's another complication, which is you have donors coming through all the time too. Sometimes in the case of Bill Clinton's presidency, sometimes staying overnight, right? And so you've got all sorts of other things go, going on as well. Um, Howard asks a great question, Howard Townsend. Uh, he, he asks you to say more about the lifers. Uh, Howard makes the point, uh, and I think he's right, that so many positions, and this goes back to the 19th century, are political appointees, what Andrew Jackson called the spoils, right? Uh, or what Lincoln said were the round holes he had to put square pegs in. Um, so. Why is it that they're not political appointees? Describe how they're not political appointees. One of the points of your article is some of them have become political appointees uh, in recent years, right? In fact, including the Biden switching out someone who Trump had in place, who Trump had appointed as a political appointee. So would you comment on that? Yeah, and to, to one thing, just to the, the, the sort of, I mean, the, the general, I mean, they have all different kinds of jobs. Uh, they are valets and ushers and, pastry chefs and chefs and butlers and housekeepers and gardeners and secret service agents and calligraphers and phone operators. So they make the house run. And in the 19th century, it became clear that you couldn't change those people over every administration. It just sort of naturally happened that they started to, you know, they run the mail room. They hear this, this is in preparation. This is the kitchen staff in preparation. I would guess for a state dinner. This is a great photograph. Um, and that's the head chef. But they, so I think that always was the case. And then it eventually became formalized and Congress began, you know, paying for their salaries. Um, and there was always someone to what you were saying a moment ago, a chief usher, someone who was in charge of this whole staff. And up until recently, that person would carry over along with the rest of the staff. But in the last three administrations, it they have not. So they're not, that's not a technically a political appointee. These, these lifers, including the usher, serve at the pleasure of the president. So they're not guaranteed employment at all. So they totally walk on eggshells and have to figure out how to adapt to a new administration because it's, you know, but there is a kind of built-in working assumption. Um, this is Daniel Shanks, who who worked at the White House for a very long time and is, is central uh, to my piece and, and is one of the people that I think about when I think of someone who's so committed to the White House. Um, so I think the point is, is in recent decades, the person who's been in charge of this staff has kind of become politicized because they've been dismissed by every new administration. So it's kind of created this seismic waves within their, the core of workers because they um, feel like their boss is is someone who maybe is has been appointed by the current president. Is there also, Susanna, a, and maybe this is another article you're going to write, is there a Southern quality to the White House in the sense that uh, there's an assumption of service and a service class? Um, as someone who's not from the South, one of the things that's really interesting, and I do think it's a legacy of slavery, uh, is that there's there there is an assumption of a service class. There's a, and, and there's a noblesse oblige toward that, actually. I think Northerners, where I come from, don't treat uh, people in service jobs as nicely. In New York, you don't. Uh, and, and so, you know, over time, the lifers were often African-American men, right, 
who were not slaves, but were in these sort of service roles. Uh, and is that part of the culture that is, is what you're describing a kind of lingering element of that? Certainly. And I think what's interesting is also the ways that it's changed. Um, it, you know, for a long time, there were generations and generations of Washington's African American families who, you know, had these jobs and would pass them on. And, um, but up until, you know, one thing I write about my article in the 60s or 70s, there was a sense of, well, people who had trades jobs, you know, who were engineers or carpenters or electricians or the movers who moved around the furniture, you know, were often, or they had, they were curators, were white and um, housekeepers and butlers um, and people who had service jobs were black. And that, that at the time of the civil rights movement, there was, that was a pronounced distinction because if you were had a service job, you were basically on call. You had to be able to, you could never take lunch off off the White House. You know, you had to be available at any given moment to run upstairs basically. And so it created um, a lot of class questions. And I think what was interesting about when I was there is that was evolving where jobs that had been historically white, you know, were, were going to people of color were, were sort of assuming those roles as well. And, but it did, it was the case that, you know, I mean, the Obama administration was very diverse. And when the Trump administration came in, there became this real distinction between um, who was on the resident staff and who was um, on the political staff. And I think that was a stark change. Right, right. I'm sure. I'm sure that made, made a big difference. Um, Vina asks a great question, uh, and it's really a question of you. What were the most memorable speeches you worked on? And why did they, and obviously the ones you worked on were the best speeches of the speeches that Obama gave, right? So. It's a great, yeah, it's a great, it's a, it's a pleasure to talk about that part of my work too. Um, well, so I was the, as the assistant speechwriter, I sort of functioned as the chief researcher uh, for all, all of the speechwriters. So I think, you know, definitely part of the reason I became interested in White House history is because a lot of the speeches I ended up writing were speeches that the president delivered from the East Room. So I was always, or the Rose Garden, you know, or the South Lawn, I was always looking for historical uh, examples to, to in put, you know, pepper the speeches. And so he, cause he really liked to talk about where he was in the house and the house's history. Um, but certainly my, what I would say is my favorite part of my job was uh, the president liked to include the stories of individual Americans in his speeches and had a real impulse towards narrative. And so a lot of times I would go research and try and identify people whose stories he could tell in speeches. And, and that um, that would, uh, that was, so I, I, I mean, working on the research for the speech he delivered in Selma was probably my favorite. That's my favorite speech that he's delivered. And it was my favorite experience um, as a speechwriter, and I was just work, you know, working as a researcher um, for his chief speechwriter, my boss. But overall, the fun part was calling people um, and getting to know a little bit about their stories, and and then translating those into into speeches. And that that sounds like such a fun job and a good use of your history skills. <laughs> Makes me proud, so proud, Susanna. Um, Raymond asks, um, did President Obama veer this off script when delivering his speeches or was he someone who stuck pretty much to his speeches, to the text? He had a real writer's relationship with the text. And so he would, you know, he would get his speeches weeks or days in advance in, in sort of print form. He would, after dictating, you know, talking about the speeches and he would make extensive line edits. So he was someone who really interacted with uh, the speeches in in as a writer would you know sort of making edits to the the text itself um miriam rosen asks how did the trumps use the white house as a political stage differently than the obamas and how did the lifers adjust to those changes i was asking myself this question uh when they had the republican national convention at, at the white house which had never happened before right yeah, yes. Um, and I think it's a it's a hard question to answer because it's kind of an expansive question, but you know, the lifers traffic in logistical details. You know, they you think that there's some big political conversation, but there's not no one's really that concerned about that in the immediacy of the task, which is 
how many people are you going to fit in? You know, who's going to stand where? And I think um, there's a lot of, you know, certainly the Trumps use the White House as a political stage in ways that were unprecedented in terms of, you know, holding political rallies, you know, at the White House, whereas previous presidents were more careful to keep separations. But I think even more recently, like, you know, in the pandemic, when that became a political um, thing, that there was questions of, it was really pronounced that, that, you know, the lifers were working to keep, when they were using the White House as a stage, that it was under these difficult circumstances where, you know, their health was at risk. And um, so are, are you comfortable commenting on that? I know you've thought about it. Um, do you, what are the appropriate uses of the White House by your president? And what are the inappropriate uses? Or to put it another way, um, should presidents, should, should they be using it as a campaign prop? And obviously some of that is unavoidable, but what, what are the limits? We have a tradition, or we had a tradition of limiting, of limiting that. Uh, most presidents, when they're running for reelection, they don't do campaign events officially from the White House. At least that's the party line, which changed. Yeah, I believe in that. You know, I think that, but but it it um is it is it what you know? I I think that's an important principle to restore. Why? Because of because well, I do think it's powerful that the White House, it's like we were talking about its visuals as an icon, become so fiercely associated with. A particular president and then that person leaves and someone else comes in and you start to associate those same visuals with a new person so it does this kind of magic trick where it it if a house can have a personality it kind of fits itself to a sort of uh, um, accommodate the occupant and then that per so that it can kind of it's like a survival mechanism right you know and then it and then it, it accumulates this power like you can't really those visuals nobody individually can possibly attain visuals of that enduring symbolic power and that's because they were attained over time like no one person could make a place so important on their own and i think so i believe in that and the symbolism of that and um i think that respecting that tradition is is contributes to sort of respecting that visual independence that means it can shape shift well it, it, it's such an important point and you say it so well you know the intention of the white house and the, as the intention of many of our other public buildings has always been that they shouldn't be partisan we've always been a partisan society but we've tried to create spaces intentionally that were not designed to be partisan and certainly in the intentionality of the white house is that you have partisan people in it but the structure itself is not supposed to be partisan, right? And, and I think that's one of the reasons why traditionally, and maybe it's not a tradition we want to have anymore, that's an opinion people can have, but that's why until recently it was kind of forbidden to, to have explicit, especially at sort of national campaign event, a national convention uh, in, in the White House as such. Um, Kirsten asks another great question. Uh, is there a collective recognition while serving as a staff member of the White House of the challenging history of the building, do the staff members have this historical consciousness? Oh my God, you can't escape it. First of all, it's always like, don't put that there, that, you know, <laughs> that urn belonged to John Adams, you know, but on the other hand, there's nowhere else to go, right? right. You know, so you, you kind of like, it's a combination of feeling like everything is historical, but also over during Christmas parties, people sit on the real furniture in the blue room, the red room, and the green room. You know, they they and they eat chicken, like you know, and it's it's a used house. Um, and so I think there's like this this way in which, and it's you can only fit so many people in there, and that's always a conflict that that we you know people want to invite more people, and yeah, you you really can't jam in 800 people into the state dining room, um, and so I think that, and then in the sense that, you know, I was talking about like, certainly you as a, you feel like you're just passing through, but there's so much, so much American sort of art and sculpture and 
you know, the actual, the chandeliers, everything about the house has, carries a story that you start to learn over time. You give tours to your family and friends. That's one of the perks of working, you know, at the White House and you tell people the history and it becomes so physically encompassing. I think I was particularly susceptible to that because I came in interested in history, but it, it, you just feel like a, you're just passing through, you know? And so I think the history really affects anyone who comes in there. And it certainly uh, creates complications for social planning, you know, from the perspective. And, and what about the staff? Uh, not the, not the uh, White House staff, the president's political staff, his policy staff. Do they share that same consciousness or are they running roughshod over this? I mean, the West Wing model, if people, I mean, the West Wing is not the real White House, the West Wing's show, right? But they're in, on, on the West Wing show, they're just walking around, right? Uh, and, and the building is just a prop, right? I mean, the building really isn't much for the show. The show is the people and their act, and it doesn't have this, West Wing, the show doesn't have the gravity of the building in the way you're talking about. Is that the reality that the political staff doesn't appreciate it in the way that White House staff does? I really don't feel that way. And that's not just my experience. First of all, in the West Wing and the show, they have windows, right? So that's one big difference is that you're, they're walking through. And in the real West Wing, you're basically submerged in the hill of the South Lawn. And, you know, there's, so it feels like you're falling into this like sort of great American snow globe. And it's, there's so much activity and it's so small and everyone's jammed into like, you know, closets basically. And there's just, there's no room for pretense, right? So the building imposes a sort of um, humility on everyone working there because, you know, there's one window to order lunch from and, you know, you use that window, the secretary of state uses that window and, you know, and there's 19, 20 year old sailors, you know, on rotation from the Navy who are serving you. And so I think, and, and on top of that, my colleagues, you know, I really, the president was so, um, the, that history of the White House was so important to him and it was so significant that he was there, that, that it felt like everyone had, had, a, had a sort of level of understanding. If anything, it can sometimes be stultifying because you feel like you're part of something much bigger and it, it, in some ways the smallness makes it scarier. Gotcha. Tadek asks if you'd comment on the switching of portraits. And of course, every president moves around portraits and you know, has the person, Reagan brought Calvin Coolidge's portrait and probably the first person to ever do that. Uh, and uh, of course, Obama had Lincoln's portrait. I believe Trump brought uh, Jackson's portrait in. Um, yeah. yeah. In the Oval Office. And there was some dust up about the portraits moving around the building. And I actually didn't speak to anyone about that specifically. But um, I mean, I think it's, I'm enchanted by the idea that an oil painting still has so much symbolic power. There was a story in the New York Times today where they were going through all the art in the Oval Office. I encourage everyone to look at it and sort of thinking about how it changed over time. But you know that 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 someone can put an oil painting above a fireplace and it still says you know it has this like it's covered as a national news story. Um, but I think that that was also what's so interesting about the decorations of the Oval Office in particular is that many times presidents are drawing on the White House collection. So they're decorating their office with things that also don't belong to them. They belong to the American people. And um, that was always uh, a rich source of material for speechwriters. And it was, it was something that was fun to share with people that you were showing around. Pranav, do you have another question? I see that there's a, it says from Pranav and we should let you ask your question yourself. Yeah, so the other question I had was, so you mentioned that like good internet access for residents workers was only installed under the Obama administration. So how did like the coordination between all these different workers look like before the Obama administration when that kind of internet access wasn't as there? Was that more of like um, in-person meetings to discuss that kind of coordination and communication? Well, they had landlines. So I, okay. think, actually, you know, I think what's interesting about it is that there was always a kind of, I imagine, and I'm feel confident that this is correct, um, a close way of communicating within the campus itself, but it was communicating from the campus outside to the world, say to Amazon, you know, that, that so like it would be an entire department would share a computer, you know, they didn't, it wasn't like, and it, it kind of reflected the insularity of the, of the culture of the house. Once you were inside of it, the kind of rest of the world could sometimes feel like it melted away. And I think probably the 
technology has changed that some, but it's still a very powerful thing that exists. Susanna, you, you shouldn't take landlines if people know what landlines are for granted. My guess is no, now- I wasn't gonna make a young person joke, but I was gonna, I was gonna take it. I was gonna I, I'm quite sure your successors in my classroom uh, don't have no, have not, have not used a landline, don't have a landline. <laughs> there was a landline in the daily text room last time I checked, so. I'm not sure, I'm not sure any longer. What, as, as we're coming close to a close here, uh, we've got a few more questions and then I wanna give you a chance also to talk about your research, what you're doing next, uh, because we know you, you have a writer and a historian in you that's coming out and we're gonna see a lot of great things. But before we get to that, a couple of quick uh, additional uh, questions we, we, we have here. Uh, Kirsten asks a great question, and you make reference to this in your article. How often did the Obamas host events? Uh, you make you say somewhere in your article that they would have late night events later than their predecessors, and then they'd go, they'd start early in the morning. Is that is that part of the regular cadence? Michelle Obama really wanted the house to be open, and um, they would host all kinds of people, you know, in sort of public events um, to try and max, and it's, they had, it was a, she had a particular emphasis on people who maybe could not, would not necessarily have been to the White House before, you know, there was a lot of events for school children. Um, so they, they hosted a lot of events. It, it could sometimes, I don't really have a specific number, but dozens of events sometimes in the course of a week. And that was a lot of turnover, you know, that would mean three or four events in the same room in the course of a day sometimes. And, and we shouldn't lose sight of how incredibly powerful it was. And there are many sources on this, Susanna probably knows this better than I do, that entire communities, particularly African-American communities, felt for the first time that the White House was accessible to them. And I think Michelle Obama was conscious of that. We can understate how important that is. Uh, but I know coming from a Jewish background, how, how important it was to Jews when they finally felt the White House and buildings like that were open to them. And that's only a few decades ago. And, and so uh, your point, I think, is a really important one. And again, Michelle Obama talks about this in, in her wonderful uh, memoir. Uh, last question on the White House, then we'll let you talk about what you're doing next. Uh, ghost stories. Raymond wants to know about ghost stories. Uh, old houses always you know, have, have a character. Uh, they, they make you hear their voice, right? Yeah, it's a funny place. I remember being at the White House very late at night um, just a few times and it certainly has a presence about it. Um, I think the funniest thing is that Harry Truman was convinced there were ghosts at the White House and he woke up every morning and he was like, you've got, I saw Abraham Lincoln. I saw, yep, you know, yep. all, and it was actually, the building was like structurally, its structural integrity was completely coming under. And so it was about to collapse. And um, that was, so that was a sort of, you know, it's possible sometimes to superimpose, but it, it certainly had a, it felt like no other place um, that I've been. And it felt ghostly in the sense that you so prominently felt the presence of others there and who had sure. been there for you. Sure. So before, before David uh, takes over here, uh, Susanna, what's next? What are you writing? What are you going to write your dissertation on? I know you're early, but you also know, I never, you know, I'm bashful about pressuring my former students, right? So what are you gonna write your, your dissertation on and what other articles? I, I wanna encourage people to go to Susanna's website, by the way. She's written another article on the White House uh, in the New York Review of Books. Um, and she's just written a book on, uh, excuse me, an article on architecture also. Uh, so, but what's next? What, what, what should we be expecting to see under your byline soon? Thank you. And thank you, for, this is, it's so much fun. Thank you for your wonderful questions. Um, and that's my way of saying, I don't have a dissertation <laughs> But I'm interested, you know, one thing that's exciting is that I'm interested in, I'm sort of starting a new, I'm in my first year of graduate school, and it's an opportunity to kind of not just build on historical interests, but think about um, where I'm going. And I uh, am interested in 20th century political history and labor history, and uh, I, that's about as far, I'm really interested in the New Deal, um, and, but there's been a lot written about it. As, as you know, and so I, I think that's about as far as I've gotten. I'm, I'm very open to all ideas, so. Well, I, I have enjoyed, enjoyed this conversation, uh, Susanna. You bring uh, depth of thought uh, and artistry to your work, and, and most of all, there's, there's a sort of genuine enthusiasm that you bring, and, and I think that's what makes history so important for us is to see that our past is meaningful today, and it offers pathways forward, and, and you, you display that, and, and you're a great example of that, so thank you so much for for talking to us. 
David Jacobs, to you. Thank you, Jeremy. And thank you, Susanna and, and Professor Surrey for what a wonderful, wonderful, stimulating, enthusiastic discussion. I can't use enough adjectives. This was, uh, this was wonderful. And we just appreciate you both so much. We have a full schedule of upcoming virtual programs. So remember to check the council's website at dfwworld.org for newly scheduled events. As always, you can catch up on all of the council's past programs by heading over to the council's YouTube channel at DFW World. And this is really a growing area for members and, and otherwise a great opportunity to listen to some of these wonderful programs that our ladies and our staff put on. Once again, thank everyone for being here this evening. A special thanks to you, Jeremy, and a special thanks to you, Susanna, uh, for joining us this evening. And everyone have a great night. Thank you.